Thank you for coming. Just a bit of a sound check as well. Can everybody hear in the far reaches? Everybody in the forest? <laughs> anybody out there? Uh, it's a privilege to uh, stand in front of you and, and to see so many faces of lives that uh, Norman's life has touched and impacted. And uh, yeah, thank you very much on behalf of the Reader family for coming. And uh, to start, what I'd like to do is just to outline what the family has uh, asked for for, the, yeah, for this ceremony. And I guess I can also introduce myself. Um, I'm one of uh, Norman's uh, smaller nephews, but maybe not the lightest. <laughs> my name is Stefan. You can call me Steph or whatever else gets my attention. Um, so the uh, outline would be, I'm going to share some thoughts at the outset, and then I'm going to read a prayer. and. And then we're going to go into a, a sharing time uh, with people who have already been asked to share. So we'll have uh, Norman's brother, Alan Reeder. He'll come up first. And then uh, a, British South Af uh, a British South Africa police uh, colleague, Dave Darby, he'll come after. And then a colleague from Lakeview who, uh, who, who uh, we'll share after that, Chris Perry. And then Matt Gildersleeve, and then Pamela Schmalling, uh, Chayla Reeder, and then Martin Reeder. And then following that, we'll have a moment of silence. And we'll close the moment of silence with Martin playing uh, a song. And then we'll have a closing prayer. Following that, we'll have about a 15-minute break or so. And then we'll have an open mic. So for the open mic, what we're asking is that people speak for around three to five minutes and that we keep it to that uh, if possible. And we'll go for as long as, as, long as it makes sense. And uh, again, thank you for coming. So I've known Norman for my whole life. And he has had an incredible impact on me but one thing I want to share first is I want to share about the hope that Norman had. Because what is the point of getting together if, if we have no hope? And I'll explain. Norman had hope. He was a very hopeful person. He had hope deep in his core. He had faith. He loved, and he was loved, very deeply, as you can see. I believe the, the hospital staff were so surprised as to how involved Martin, Chela, and Patricia were, that they were in the trenches with, with Norman, and, and to them that that was rare. We see how he was supported in his last days by his, his wife and his, and his kids. Now this hope that Norman had, we can have the same hope. 
when I was pastoring in Cumberland, it was quite uncanny because he cheered me on and supported me. And he would tell me, Steph, you're, you're one of the best preachers in the Comox Valley. And I said, well, maybe you've only heard me speak. So I just want to share a few thoughts, and it's not to overrule any thoughts that you may have had or, or, or have. It's more of uh, just some thoughts on what I believe from my time with Norman, and I've spent a lot of time with him, about some of the things that he believed and, and, and clung to in his own way. And it's available to us. So it's more of an invitation and more of an invitation to consider these thoughts. So in the scriptures, in Mark chapter 8, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Norman was an incredible servant. I saw that over and over and over again, the way he served, the way he gave up his time and his energy to help others. I can't think of anything more exemplary or anything more that exemplifies love than that. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And then in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And I've seen Norman face some challenges in his life, and I've seen him uh, in, in his building life, when he's building and interacting with people, and he would from time to time have me alongside. We actually worked together in, uh, in, in Campbell River, and I saw the way his faith shaped his behavior. He saw that there is a creator, people matter, and I'm gonna treat people with respect. And so he worked with integrity and with dignity and with quality, which rubbed off on myself. And the scripture continues, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And I think Norman was not put to shame. He's, we can look at his life and celebrate it fully. And just one final scripture. And this is the hope. We want to present hope here today. Luke chapter 23, this is when Jesus was hung on the cross and either side there were criminals. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, truly I say to you, and here's the hope, today you will be with me in paradise. So I I stand here today and I believe with Norman's faith that he is in paradise. No more struggle, no more pain, no more mortgage. Today you will be with me in paradise. He, He clung to that hope and he is in paradise. I just have a few brief thoughts of my experience with Norman. Norman was a man I looked up to. He would always hug me when he greeted me, and he stepped in where my father could not because of my father's Parkinson's disease. So picture yourself at the age of 12, your dad, who's your hero, who did the Ironman triathlon, for crying out loud, gets Parkinson's and is handicapped, and so now you're, you can't even throw the football with your father. So Norman stepped in. He taught me how to build. We worked together. We actually worked together on this house. Day after day in the summer. And Patricia and Martin and Shayla were, were, they were generous enough to share him with me. So he hired me in high school to help help build his house. When we had our pig farm in Black Creek, it's a whole other life and a whole other story. He built a couple barns for us. Now, but the thing, it wasn't so much, yes, he taught me technical skill, but often he would look at me if I struggled and he would say, Steph, you can do this. You can do this. And you see that love and that support and that belief how it's impacted his family it's impacted me and I'm sure it's impacted many of you oh beautiful so I I stand here today I, I work in construction and the reason I'm able to work in construction and look after my family is because of Norman he taught me the skills so that I could look after my family. So, and I thought over the past few weeks, there's, there's way too much to tell. So I'm, I'm gonna leave it at that from my, uh, from what I'm gonna share, is that he gave me the skills to look after my family. Um, there was a prayer that I wrote and gave to the readers when they were going through the difficult trial of being in the hospital with Norman. And it was a feeble attempt at, to, at trying to give them some hope and some courage. And so I've been asked to read it. And so in a way you can hear it, it brings you into the struggle a little bit in the hospital. So this is the prayer that I I sent them. 
Dear Jesus, thank you for always being there to listen to us when we need you. We have nowhere else to go. Where can we go? We cannot go inside ourselves. We are filled with fear and anxiety because we do not know what is going to happen. We cannot fix Norman. We cannot take away his pain. We love him more than we can express with words. We have nothing to offer you except our helplessness and hope that you will step in and touch Norman, that you will guide the doctors and nurses to make the right decisions and to know when and how to provide the care Norman needs to recover. This accident has brought us all together to bond as a family and to pull together in one direction for Norman. We will be strong for each other, but we are crying out to you to intervene, to bring healing, to bring restoration to all of Norman's faculties, that you will energize his kidney and make it function, that you will remove the cloudiness in his mind and bring him to full awareness of all the love that surrounds him, that you will work in his body to heal the brokenness and restore him to full health. We believe you can do this. Our minds are focused on him coming back to full health, and we know with the power of our thoughts directed through you, this will all work together for good. We ask for strength for the days ahead and for the comfort of each other and the comfort that comes from you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Life, life is very mysterious, and often the things we ask God for don't happen. But I think the lesson that the readers followed was that you never stop fighting. And just, hear, and just getting the email updates and, and seeing what they did, what more could they have done? They did everything. And that's how you want to live. You leave it all there. Nothing left. And it was Norman's time. And that's hard to accept, I think. But... Uh, that's one of the mysteries of life. But I, it's, I rarely see, uh, I, I can see so many faces here. and I see the love that everybody has for Norman. Okay, we're going to transition here. Uh, I'll take a seat and we'll, we'll ask each, each individual to come up. Uh, and I won't invite each individual after the next. The individual who comes first will get Alan Reeder up here, and then Dave Darby can follow, and Chris, and then, then Matt, and, and so on. Okay, so Alan Reeder, please come up. Well, good day to you all, as we'd say in New Zealand. Good day, mate. Uh, I just wondered how I could possibly start to talk about our young lives in Uganda. I thought probably uh, the best part of what I would be talking about was when we were young together rather than later in his life when I didn't really have much to do with him and other people did. So I just wanted to give you a bit of background of how we grew up. Our dad was a colonial policeman in Uganda and he had served in Palestine being before being transferred there in 1936. Our mum was Canadian and she had left Canada to go and work as a nanny for somebody in England. And while she was there, she was invited by somebody who was working in Uganda to go out there and be a nanny for their kids. And that's how mum and dad met. So they had four children. I'm the first. My sister Marilyn, who lives in England now, 
and is very sorry she can't be here, is the second. Norman came third, and then our youngest sister, Penny, who died about five years ago in Vancouver. I think Norman had quite a lot to contend with when he was growing up, which is probably what gave him the strength that he obviously exhibited later in life. Because he had an older brother who could do things that he couldn't do. And boy, that frustrated him. We were all sent off to boarding school, one by one. I went just before I was eight. And each of us followed probably around about the age of eight. And we all went to a boarding school on a farm in Kenya, at a place called Captagat. And there we learned things like horse riding and how to cope with homesickness and loneliness and all those kind of things. And fairly strict punishment too. And I think all of that contributed to his toughness. There was an occasion one weekend when we were all, or a lot of us were playing football outside and one of us kicked a ball that caught his thumb and dislocated it backwards. None of us knew what to do. It was a weekend and the staff were kind of putting their feet up somewhere else. And it took us a couple of hours before we found the school nurse who could put the thumb back into place for him. So he suffered a bit of pain during that time, but he, he stuck it out. And it was there when we first found out about rugby. <laughs> In those days, for us, it was just a free-for-all battle for the ball. We had no idea of the rules. We didn't know you had to pass it backwards or any of that sort of stuff. It was all just a big pile in and try and grab the ball of whoever was in the middle. Then, <clears throat> then we went off to secondary school. And the secondary school was in Nairobi. Uh, that was a boarding school for boys. I had been there about four years when he arrived. And I was a senior. And he was one of what was called the rabble. Now the rabble were the, the first, the new entrants to the school. And boy, all the seniors just disregarded them and, you know, tore, teased them endlessly. So we didn't have a lot to do with each other during that year. But once again, he couldn't do what I could do because I was far more senior than he. We did hang out together during school holidays because the, the way the school ran there was there was three months of school, one month of school holiday, three months of school, one month of school holiday, three months of school, and a month of school holiday. And that, that was the cycle every year. So we did hang, get to hang out together during the school holidays. And that was when we would go on safari with our dad, who was the, the policeman. And we lived in various parts of Uganda. We started off in Kampala. From there, we went to a place called Fort Portal in Western Uganda. And <clears throat> That was a pretty wild place too. It was near the Ruanzori Mountains on the border with the Congo. Uh, we got to see people like the pygmies, who were tiny little people, they only stood about so high, but they were all fully grown. And um, so we had quite an experience there. And that was where we would go on safari with him out into the bush, out into the, uh, what we called MMBA. MMB stands for Miles and miles of bloody Africa. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, 
And I think that's where he developed his love of MMBA and of animals. And many of them don't exist in the numbers any longer. And this was a huge disappointment to him when he went back to Uganda not long ago. I think he came back completely depressed about what had happened in Africa and how Africa had changed. So that was a big disappointment for him. When he, was in, he left Africa, my mum and dad bought a, a little van and my dad converted it into a little camper van. <clears throat> and when they left Africa, they drove from Uganda all the way down to South Africa. And Norman was so incensed about being taken out of Africa that he never spoke a word the entire trip to my mum and dad, apparently. And my mum remembered that and reminded me, or told me many times, that there was not a word spoken. He didn't say a thing because he was so infuriated by being taken out of school and dragged away from his beloved Africa. <clears throat> anyway, he and a mate in England got together. Norman tried one or two things like uh, architecture, and, but he never quite hooked into any of that stuff. And he decided that what he would do, he and a mate would buy a Jeep and they would kit this thing out, and they would travel all the way down through Africa. But unfortunately, that trip never came off because they weren't allowed to go into the Sudan at the time. And I'm not sure why, but that, that's what put the, the trip to an end. And it was soon after that that he left to go to Rhodesia and join the BSAP. And you'll hear a little more about that in a minute or two. So he spent a few years at the BSAP, I tried to talk to him about his experiences there, but he would not. I think he must have gone through some pretty traumatic times there, some of the things that he saw and had to do. So he would never, never talk to me about it anyway. Well, I come now to a few recollections from my children. And Sophie is the, the twin daughter who painted these pants. Um, and she, she writes, I remember Norman, Norman's laugh and smile. When he video called my dad and anyone else who was around to chat, we'd gather around to say hi and get his beautiful big smile and strong voice shining back at us. It always made me smile too. In 2002, my then boyfriend, now husband, and I came to stay with Norman and Patricia for a whole month. The three of us, Norman, Matt and I, went over to Vancouver to collect Grandad Frank's ashes. Now, that my dad was Frank, and he died of a stroke, and Will gave his body to medical science uh, for, uh, for research. So they undertook to cremate his body and when they'd finished with him. And so Sophie and Matt and Norman went over to Vancouver to pick him up. <coughs> On the way home, we missed the ferry, but all was okay as we found a diner, had halibut and chips for dinner, and to top it off, the TV was showing a game of New Zealand rugby, which made Norman very happy. And she goes on to say, there's a saying between my husband and me, that ain't bluegrass, said in a Canadian accent. We got it from Norman when we stayed with him and Patricia. Can't remember why he said it, but we use it when something isn't quite right or authentic. <laughs> that ain't bluegrass. I remember Norman's kindness when we broke his van. 
and how he came and got us on a distant highway. He didn't seem to be too bothered that we'd wrecked his vehicle, but we still feel bad about it 16 years later. <laughs> then my, my second son, Ben, he says, one memory of Norman is when we visited Vancouver Island. It must have been in the early 1980s. My recollection is very vague. I remember driving quite a long way. I think it was in Grandad's utility truck vehicle. If I'm not mistaken, Norman and her family were living in a log cabin. I think that must have been the gingerbread house. Perhaps Norman had been instrumental in building it, and it wasn't completely done, because I recall him constantly active with his construction tools. I remember we all had a really nice time. The surroundings were a bit rural, but it was very natural. There was a picnic table where we had lunch, and I remember chit-chatting with Patricia there. Hard to recall the details, he says, as it was so long ago, but it's a very nice memory from my youth. Then my oldest son, Thomas, he says, I remember motoring with Norman in a little tinny for hours. Now, a tinny to us is a little aluminium uh, motorboat with an outboard on it. He said, in a tinny for hours and hours in the cold, trolling for salmon off one of the Gulf Islands. I remember Norman, was, Norman always had a drive and zest for life. It was always with excited anticipation of what adventures there were to be had when we were going to visit. Longboard surfing in seven millimeter thick wetsuits off the west coast of Vancouver Island with the seats, with the seals also playing in the same waves. Buying bear repellent capsicum spray. And I think Norman bought a folding buck knife in a belt pouch. Somehow I still have the pouch, not sure how that occurred. Grandad would tell stories, I'm not sure how true this is, but Grandad would tell stories of Norman on a motorcycle that he would ride at breakneck speed. If I remember correctly, Norman's commanding officer would call Grandad to ask him to tell his son to slow down. But I don't know how that happened because um, Norman was never in any forces where, my, where our dad was around. And anyway, he finishes up, he says, I think that this was a metaphor of Norman. He was brave, adventurous, and so very proud of his family. And my sister Marilyn recalls an event when we were all young. It was Christmas morning and there was no stocking at the end of the bed. Norman went wild because Father Christmas had forgotten him, but the stocking had fallen off the end of his bed and was on the floor. <laughs> anyway, all I wanted to do was finish up here and say to him, Kwaheri Baba Yango, Tuto Onana, which means goodbye, my brother. We will see each other again. Okay. Greetings. Last time I spoke in front of a crowd as big as this was 50 years ago in Africa on a promotion course. I hope this goes better. Greetings. My name is Dave Darby. I live on the other side of the island in Souk. About three weeks ago, I received an email from a BSAP colleague of mine, Seamus Power, from Ireland. He gave me the very sad news that Norman had died. I immediately contacted Martin and offered my genuine condolences. I'll try and explain as quickly as I can why Martin asked me to attend the celebration and represent the British South Africa police. In 1965, Norman went out to what was then Rhodesia to join the BSAP. 
This, by the way, was the same year as the Rhodesian Prime Minister Ian Smith declared independence from Britain, known as UDI. I had already been in the BSAP for two years, having joined in 1963. I'm going to try and give you a very short and vaguely true history of Rhodesia and the BSAP. The BSAP was generally described as a paramilitary police force and was the first line of defence in the country, Rhodesia. Cecil Rhodes, <coughs> let's call him a, a, business, a British businessman and mining mogul, had received a warrant for his company, the British South Africa Company, to prospect for gold and minerals in the country north of the Limpopo River during the latter part of the 1800s. This land was ruled by Mazilikazi, the chief of the Matabili, a breakaway tribe from the Zulu Nation in South Africa. He entered this land, which is later named after him, Rhodesia, with his wagons of prospectors, hunters, farmers, and the usual camp followers. This large band was protected by a force of private police named the British South Africa Company's Police. A number of years later, when Rhodesia was formed into a self-governing colony within the British Commonwealth, the name of the police force remained the same except the word company was removed. The BSAP, the BSAP continued until about 40 years ago when Mr Mugabe was elected as president of the country. The country became Zimbabwe. The BSAP was no more. I never met Norman, but had spoken to him on a few occasions during the past three years that I have lived here. With my background having served in Rhodesia and with the BSAP, Martin asked me to represent the BSAP and talk in what I could find out about Norman's life in Rhodesia. I can assure you this has been quite a task. Former members of the BSAP are spread out all over the world. We've lost contact with a lot of them. Some of them have died. The first ones I made contact with were Fred Thompson in Australia and Ivan Smith in South Africa. Ivan is a rather colourful character. Prior to joining the police, did at least one tour with Mad Mike Hoare as a mercenary in the Congo in about 1963. Ivan's written a few books about this. Mike Hoare ended up in prison in South Africa after leading a failed coup in the Seychelles Islands in the Indian Ocean. This has got nothing to do with Norman, but it's a little bit of background. Fred, um, both Fred and Ivan had been in Norton's intake during his first time in depot. On completion of Norman's basic training, he was transferred to Buloa in Matabeleland province, the south of the country. A number of people have contacted me who served with Norman there. One is Dave Kennedy, now living in Spain. He describes Norman, Norman as a keen athlete and a useful winger on the rugby field. That's come up already. Rugby is very much to Rhodesia as hockey is to Canada. I liked his remarks about Norman having a good singing voice and accompanying himself on a 12-string guitar. Norman took these talents to Durban on the South African coast when he went on extended leave, earning pocket money by busking in bars and on the waterfront, sleeping in his car when the weather was bad, or on the beach with his surfboard and poncho. Now, we had extremely good leave conditions in Rhodesia, something like 60 days a year, but we weren't very well paid. So unless you could scrounge a bed with some relations or something, leave outside the country was pretty hard. Now, back to work in Bulawa, Norman had volunteered for and had been accepted into the police anti-terrorist unit. This is briefly and badly described as a rural bush SWAT team. It was much, much more than that, but that's the nearest I can try in trying to explain without going into it for hours. He proved himself an accomplished tracker and was exceptionally able at home and in the bush. Now, this is something that Alan's just mentioned earlier on, his upbringing in East Africa. This would have helped him enormously. As he had always hankered to work in the rural areas, he was transferred on his own request from Bulawayo to an area near Victoria Falls where the Zambezi flows into the Lake Kariba, 
with a lovely African name of Sibinkwazi. This is where he excelled. I don't know many of you people have been down to Vic Falls. It's a very, very beautiful part of the world. Very rugged. Now, another colleague of his in, in uh, Rhodesia, Edward Irons, who's now in, in Cape Town, South Africa, relates to having been part of a five-man power to stick with Norman in the very remote northeastern part of the country in the Chisarera Game Reserve. Their short-wheeled uh, Land Rover and trailer got totally stuck in the mud. The lads raided their ration packs for 20 cans of savory mints, which is, it was terrible stuff. No, none of us liked it. And with these tins as payment, I managed to obtain the help of about 10 Batonka tribesmen in lifting the transport out of the mud. Now, the Batonka are very, very rural and a very, if I may use the expression, primitive tribe. Civilization honestly hasn't hit them as yet. Out of interest, this is the area where Cecil the Lion was shot by the American dentist about a year ago. The American hunting guides had lured Cecil out of the protection of the game reserve into the controlled hunting area with a dead donkey as bait and then shot poor Cecil. There was basically an ambush. Cecil came out sniffing out the dead donkey and he was shot. Um, this made international press for some time and there's been certain changes to hunting regulations in Zimbabwe. Edwin continues, maybe with a twin of, twinge of envy, the, the good times that Norman and a friend had in Bulawayo, both fit, good-looking lads and in possession of a TR2 sports car. The boys say Norman cut a fine figure in uniform patrolling the wide streets of Bulawayo on the motorcycle. Alan mentioned something about a motorcycle, but don't think that's to do with this. But the pictures over there, you'll see a picture of Norman in uniform. He looks pretty smart. It was a very, very smart uniform. The streets of Bulawayo, by the way, Cecil Rhodes, um, insisted that you could turn a span of oxen, a U-turn in them. The streets are still the same as that. They're absolutely enormous. During the London Olymp Olympics a few years ago, I beg your pardon, I'll start again. David, uh, Peter Campbell remembers that he and Norman acting in a Macbeth play in the Bulawayo Theatre. This is quite an accomplishment, as this form of entertainment was very popular. TV was very limited in Rhodesia. It was black and white, and only for a couple of hours a day. International sanctions, remember we had UDI, prohibited all sorts of films and sitcoms and everything else like that. Um, I read this, the initial part from Peter Campbell over to my Canadian wife. She couldn't make it here. And um, Peter and Norman, in the Macbeth play, had a part to play which was saying rhubarb, 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 rhubarb. Now you might wonder what that is. If you can imagine a bar or something, you've got the two main characters in the bar and you've got the usual people sitting around. You don't want everything to be silent. The idea was the other actors would just sit there and mumble, mutter, rhubarb. Some actor worked out that this was a way of rubbish talk. And this is what um, Peter Campbell and Norman were doing there. I think acting as well, but besides that. It sounds a bit stupid, but I can imagine how it was. They enjoyed themselves very much. Right now, during the L London Olympics a few years ago, David Kennedy, who was living in Cornwall in England at the time, was contacted by Norman and asked if Martin could touch base with him. Apparently, this never happened. As Dave says, like father, like son, Martin would rather have the bright lights of London than salty old Cornwall. They've also asked me to say that although the RCMP was a bit, was not too shabby in their day, they never had real leather. I think you're saying they can't compare with the BSAP. The two police forces are very, very similar. We were mounted. The countryside was similar in a way with large, if I may use old-fashioned expressions, native reserves, huge spread out farming areas. There was a lot of similarity there. Um, this morning, before I came out here from Suka, I opened my email quickly. 
and there was an email there from David. This is from Dave um, Kennedy. And he asked me, he said, you know, Dobbs, you'll be going out to the celebration. He said, please, once again, my condolences to the family. And this evening, he'll raise a glass to his friend. All of those mentions speak very highly of Norman. He was a very popular figure, and I can understand how much he enjoyed life in Rhodesia and the BSAP. The life there would have fitted him like a glove. Although Norman and I never served in the same province, we were together very likely in Part 2 training. That's the police anti-terrorist unit I told you. This is part of the uniform with Part 2, the cap with the flap down the back, a little bit like the Legion, to stop you getting so burnt in the sun. Um, one thing I just want to mention about Part 2 and the times in Rhodesia, this was, it all ended up 40 odd years ago, but the, the conflict we had, the war if you want to call it that, was pretty severe. Tens of thousands of people were killed. Um, I myself had two cousins there. One of them was in the police, in the BSAP. A Land Rover went over a mine, he was killed. Another one was with the wildlife department. He was shot by the terrorists as well. Um, Martin, uh, rather, Norman would definitely have been in considerable contacts and action during his time in Partu, especially in the area where he was, up by Simbunkwazi, on the Zambezi River. This was one of the terrorist routes coming along through to try and get down to Bulawayo. Um, all the members of the BSAP in, uh, joined me in, in offering our deepest condolences to the Redar family. In the Zulu and Sindabeli language, Hambahale, farewell. My name is Chris Perry, and uh, I worked with Norman at, um, at Lakeview Youth Custody Center. It's about 80 kilometers from here. Um, it was. Um, it was a jail for um, youth boys. Um, a lot of, a lot of them had a lot of, a lot of trouble. So uh, um, I got to know Norman quite well. So Norman uh, was about the same age as I am right now when we first met. Uh, meaning that I've known Norman for probably more than half of my life. Um, I arrived at Lakeview as a very young adult, um, barely older than the boys who were supposed to look after. Uh, Norman and I immediately became friends. I think uh, I needed someone who actually knew what they were doing um, with these strange boys who were really bad kids. And I think Norm just needed a father figure and friend to someone who wasn't going to just tell him off just for the sake of seeing his reaction. Um, we, uh, we worked on many projects at Lakeview together. And the more I worked with Norm, the more I felt like, I was, like he was simply there to encourage me and to be someone for me to access if I, if I needed help in any way. Um, at work, uh, Norman uh, required, acquired a few nicknames from the boys, as, uh, as young men will often do, though. They want to give everybody a nickname. Um, Norman was uh, referred to as Storm and Norman, the Normanator. Uh, the boys um, lovingly called him Norm the Nose because we had many rules at Lakeview, and one of them was no smoking. Norm would have, uh, have boys on his work crew would try and sneak off, and every time they came back, Norm was sure to catch them, and there was some sort of consequence for these boys, but um, the rules at Lakeview were really there because, um, well, th these boys, they were really forgotten souls, and a lot of them felt like they, um, like they really just didn't belong. So the rules at Lakeview, which is the East Detention Center, were set there, um, to control their often chaotic, chaotic lives. Um, they could make their own choices um, and they could obey the rules and everything would be great or they could break those rules and they could receive the consequences. And often the consequences made the most impact for these boys because they didn't have anybody 
in their lives every day that loved them or took care of them. So just by um, just by us being with these boys and giving them these these lines that they weren't to cross, and if they crossed, they received consequences. That was love to these kids, and they really. Um, I don't know, they really gravitated towards um, the corrections officers who were firm but fair with these boys. And Norm was one of those people. Um, Norm was, was often a supervisor, and he worked on my team for a number of years. And uh, we would often send boys to, to Norman for some sort of discipline for being bad. And we'd find out later that these boys, the, the basically the, the consequence they got was they got a one-on-one -on -one counseling session with Norman. Um, and Norm would come back and he says, these guys are going to be okay. Everything's all right now. And he just sent them back to our unit. And more times than not, um, these boys who came back to us, they had been corrected. And it was more the, it was just the loving and caring nature that Norm had with these kids, which would be so important for their lives for these kids who were, who didn't feel loved. They didn't feel like they had anyone to listen to. And Norm just offered that, that ear to them that, um, that you know, that there was someone out there other than, than just the kids on the street who would understand them and actually try and, and love them and actually give them, um, give them voice and give them somewhere to be heard. So Lakeview could be a quite a chaotic place. As you can imagine, we'd have 40, 50, 60 kids there. Um, when I first started there, they were there because mostly for assaults and beating up other people. And as it got later on into our careers, um, right up to the time Lakeview closed, we, we'd end up with kids with pettier thefts and stuff like that and more into the mental health range. But Anyways, um, we'd be called at nighttime. We'd be called to units. There was about six of us, seven of us on site, and we'd be called to from unit to unit to unit. We'd be we'd be putting out fires per se. Kids would want to fight. They want to be carrying on, um, not doing so well with one another. And then you'd walk into Norman's unit, and you'd be expecting the worst. And uh, and we'd were, we'd come running in there. And hopefully, um, everything was all right. And there'd be ten boys, and they'd be sitting around Norman, and we'd be like. 30 kids in this camp are going crazy right now. Like, what are you doing that's so special? And as we walk in there, Norm would be sitting down, he'd have his book out, and they'd be mesmerized by the stories that Norm would be reading. He'd just read normal novels. It may have been his accent, it may have been his delivery. I don't know what it was, but we all wish we had it. We didn't. Um, but there's never any disrespect towards Norman. And if there was any disrespect, I have to say that we didn't ever have to deal with it because the boys would deal with it on behalf of the staff because they didn't want to lose their story time at night. That was one of the consequences they'd lose if they were disrespectful, and especially to Norman. I also had the opportunity to work with Norman outside of Lakeview. He sat tirelessly with my wife, Lisa, and I, um, <laughs> we were deciding we were to plan our, uh, our forever home with our, with our two children. And, and I would guess that if you went to Norman's computer right now, there'd be a, Norm, or a Chris and Lisa file, and there'd probably be 60 plans in there because every time we came here, we redid something or redid a lot of somethings. But anyway, he sat tirelessly with us. We built a beautiful house in Comox. Uh, Norm would show up there almost every week to make sure we were doing things right, and we usually were. Um, he would correct us if we weren't. And we loved it so much that all but two years later, we started the whole process over again because we wanted a different home somewhere else. So anyways, Norm put up with us again, and uh, we got to be great friends um, through my work at, with, with him at Lakeview in the, in the um, in the planning process, um, we spent, a, and as far as work goes, we spent a lot of time together. See, we were on the sh same shift, and Norman had this station wagon. 
this blue station wagon. And if Patricia remember, you had a perfect view of the road as you were traveling down the road, right? So I had enough of that um, after the first trip in that car. So I was the guy who would leave the house and pick up Norman. And I'd often arrive here about 5.30 in the morning because we had to be at work at 7.30. And Patricia and Norman would always be sitting in that kitchen, drinking tea. I'd come knock on the doors, Norman's finishing up his stuff and I'd be invited in to have, to have tea. Anyways, I don't know how he managed to get you out of bed every morning to come and drink tea with him because my wife was still sleeping, that's for sure. So with, with all this driving, we, uh, we spent many, many, many hours in our vehicle. We talked, my vehicle, <laughs> really. We talked about everything. And the more I got to, nor to know Norm, the more I got to realize that he had this incredible passion. And it wasn't just for one thing or two things. It was for everything. He spoke, the, he spoke of his house and what he's going to do next on his property. But especially when we spent those time together, he, he just talked about his family like it, he, it was it was the best thing for him like he would have passion about this and passion about this but when he talked about his family he would absolutely glow he'd recount uh, what Martin was doing where Martin was going how big and strong Martin was becoming it was like oh my gosh I got to really know Martin and I don't even know who he is right <laughs> I do know him now but at the time it was like holy smokes I know this kid um then he'd switch over to Chayla and he'd be on how, all, how she's doing her academics and her volleyball and oh my gosh, it was never ending. And I was, but, but through that whole thing, I was in such awe of the passion and love that Norman actually had for his family. And, and he made me want to be a better person just by hearing the stories and the escapades he was having with his family. It was truly a, a blessing for me to have him in my car. Uh, long drives, uh, not much to talk about, but we always had something to talk about. It was great. Um, and he would speak of you, Patricia, and he truly loved you. He just, like, right down to the core of his soul, he just loved you. I don't think there was anyone he admired more in this world than you, and everything evolved around you. So it's just, it was a beautiful thing to see, and a great example as I was 24 years old and newly married, and um, to see this, to this example of a person who is at my age right now and still so much in love with his family, his wife, his community, and all the things that he actually had to offer. Oh, we get down to the last couple months. Oh. So I went down to see Norman the second I heard about the accident. It was delayed in getting to all of us. Um, I took work off. I was like, Lisa, I asked my wife, what should I do? She said, just go. So I went down there. Somehow I snuck into his room. Um, I got on the tails of some cleaning people, and somehow I'm standing there in front of Norman when he was in his bed, and these nurses came up, and they, um, and they weren't too friendly with me. Um, when they found out I wasn't family. And that was difficult for me, you see, because Norman never made me feel like I wasn't part of his family. He was just that type of person who, once you were his friend, you were always his friend. And if you're part of his family, you're always part of his family. So it, it was just, it was strange for me to be there, getting in there, seeing my friend um, in that situation. I mean, I couldn't talk to him, but to being escorted out and saying, you're not family, it just seemed really strange and weird. And it was, it was really, really brought home how serious this whole situation was. Um, Anyways, um, anyway, just plain difficult to see. Anyway, um, nor, um, I would often be in this area. My wife and I do a lot of running in uh, Seal Bay. I shared this with Martin um, by email, and I'd always want to come and see Norm. I'd think, oh, Norm's just down the road. But, you know, as it all goes, you go, well, he'll be there another day. I don't want to be impolite. I don't want to just drop in. Um, so um, I thought, well, I'll give him some notice. That's proper. You know, that's... Uh, He'll always be there. And, uh, and anyways, well, here I am. I'm invited. 
Um, there's no norm to greet me. I'm sure you all feel as sad as I am that Norm isn't here to greet all of you with a big smile and a welcome and come have some tea. I know that when I heard of Norm's passing, I felt that this world we live in just became a little bit darker. Um, a spark in my life has been extinguished and I pray that his family and all of you find some peace in knowing that Norm is no longer suffering. He is in a better place now and we're waiting with tea and biscuits when we all come to join him. Thank you. I feel very fortunate to have had Norman Reeder as my uncle. He was, uh, ever since I was little, I just always remember being blown away by how awesome he was. It just, he had so much energy and he was so strong and he had really cool dogs and, and an amazing accent. He's, he cut a head off a chicken in front of me when I was five years old. and totally blew my mind um he was just like he was a man and uh it was it's been really amazing getting to getting to know him again because uh i always lived in vancouver i never had an opportunity to spend large amounts of time with norm but i moved up here in september and uh almost immediately started spending pretty much my whole four days off with him for the last five months. Um, our mutual joy of having a project kind of brought us together and uh, he just had an endless amount of energy and, and projects. So I started helping him and uh, then he really started helping me and uh, he he did what everyone else has, has talked about so far, and he is just uh, totally willing to give you all of his time. And uh, that's really the first time, other than my own father, who, where I've had someone just give me such a large amount of time. And it was, it was really special for me, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And... I'm really going to miss him. My name is Pamela, and I am the twin sister of Patricia. As no surprise, right? Um, but I thought it would be important to introduce myself. I have been asked to read some words from our oldest brother. His name is Steve. He's in Montreal, and um, he's been there for his whole adult life. And uh, he would come over and visit, and we sometimes some of us would visit him. And he is going through his own um, very difficult time right now with his wife, who has suffered three strokes and is in the hospital. So even through his turmoil with what his family is going through right now, he took the time to write out some words on his reflections on Norman. So I'm going to quote him now. When I think of Norman, several words come to mind. <clears throat> the first is gentleman, in the true British sense of the word. Respect for others, upright and a man of his word, humble and yet proud in a way that endeared him to people, and I might add, that endeared him especially to our father. The second is family, his most precious heritage and disputed priority for him. When he answered the phone with one word, readers, We've all heard that when we phoned. 
I always felt welcomed in a very special universe, one that did not require many words to feel the depth of the values that had been honed over generations. And the third is loving husband. When our sister Patricia first brought Norman home to submit him to the relentless inspection of brothers and sisters, and there was eight of us, he passed with flying colors and we were sure that he would make a worthy partner for Patricia. And the test of time proved us right. In typical Norman style, his love for Patricia gives credence to the old saying, quiet waters run deep. He didn't need words to make us feel the depth and unwavering quality of his love for his Patricia. As the eldest member of the Gildersleeve family, I unequivocally state that it has been an honor to count Norman as a truly distinguished member of our family. May his memory be cherished by all of us. Love, Steve. I asked Martin to join me because I think this is going to be harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, so unfortunately uh, for our family, another one of our cherished members passed away a couple years ago. And that's my Uncle John. Um, and I was chatting with his wife, Carolyn, and his son, Jordan, the other night. And I said, I don't know what to say. How do you, how do you sum up everything that he means? And Jordan just said, well, you don't have to do that. <laughs> um, good one, Jordan. And um, he said, maybe pick a saying, or maybe that was you, Carolyn. Pick a saying, you know, and start from there. And two sayings immediately popped to mind, one of which we talked about a lot when I was doing my master's degree and writing papers. There's nothing so intimidating as a blank page. Very true in this situation of where do you start? And the second thing that I will always remember about my dad um, is the way his voice sounded when he would say, it's okay, sweetie, when I was going through something challenging. Um, and in the last five years, I've been through my own fair share of incredibly challenging circumstances, um, circumstances that had me move home for a year just to recover and spend time and just get my feet back under me, um, circumstances that had me pursue counseling, um, and circumstances that had me pursue something called spiritual direction. Um, I'm a Christian, and um, spiritual direction for me has been a place of, I believe in God, but I don't know how to bridge this gap that I feel is between us, so can you help me do that? And there's this person who, I've been using the word midwife a lot of, there's been all these people coming alongside us in this experience, but I would say a spiritual director is almost like a midwife. <laughs> they help you through. And so as I would process with my dad, um, he would often say, it's okay, sweetie. And everybody, and I'm many of you here have said this to me already today, that I'm very much like my mother. No surprise who my mother is. <laughs> and I talk like her. I move my hands like her. We look very similar. <laughs> uh, we do a lot of things the same way. Um, but my dad understood me, maybe because he knew my mom very well, but I think also because I am like my dad. Um, I, have his, I have his deep thinking I have his deep feeling, and people might not know that about my dad, but he was a very deep feeler, a very deep, deep feeler. And I think as we heard today from Dave, his time in the BSAP, probably boarding school when he was a little boy, you know, being ripped from Africa, the home that he loved, I think all of that contributed to, um, I think he just suffered in ways that we don't know. And he felt in ways that we probably never understood. And I remember talking with him sometimes and just feeling like he was this misunderstood person who didn't have a home anymore. He was a white African 
with an accent from nowhere land that nobody really recognized. And you look at a white African and you don't know that they're from Africa, but that was who he was. So he's kind of this third culture unknown person. And as I reflected on the last five years in this journey of healing that I've been on in my own life, I kind of wonder if maybe all of my own processing as I would drive home from counseling and chat with my parents on the way and just kind of debrief what it was or chat on the way home from spiritual direction and just kind of download what I experienced. I wonder if that was healing for him because he always offered me a safe place to cry. I'm a crier. Um, so it's a miracle. I'm not a disaster at this moment. Um, <laughs> and, and he would always make a safe space for me to cry. He was never intimidated by my tears. And, and I've heard that men are fixers, you know, so I'd phone home and dad, I'm just, you know, and he, well, how about this? And I would say, dad, I just need to cry right now. And he would say, okay, go for it. <laughs> and he would give me space to cry. And then we could chat about solutions later. And, and I don't think there's a way for me to help you understand what he means to me and what he has meant to me. Um, that's probably an impossible task. And I'm sure many of you have known love. I personally feel like I was loved the best out of anybody in the world from my dad. Um, but yeah, he was my anchor. And I don't really have a story or a speech written, but I feel like I have these little anecdotes of things that I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss phoning him when I couldn't sleep at night and having him pray with me. And as I would lie there and just kind of relax, he didn't have to say anything. I just knew he was there on the phone with me, and that's all he needed. I'm going to miss phoning him when I was doing my master's. Dad, I just can't do it. I don't know where to start. I don't know. And we would ch chat through what I was thinking, and we would, okay, yeah, okay, and come up with it. And then he would read my paper and tell me it was amazing and just my biggest fan. Um... Yeah, I'm going to miss the ways that he fought for me. Um, I have a job at Arrow Leadership. My boss and his wife are here, also my colleague Dana, and I love them so much. And I didn't know how I felt about Arrow. It was hard for me to say yes, but my dad, Chela, you're going to do this. <laughs> and I needed that at the time. And, and we've had our moments of disagreement where I didn't want him to be telling me what he was telling me, but I knew he loved me, and, and we would find a way through it, as painful and as scary as it was to be in conflict with the man I love the most in the entire world. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss just phoning him and feeling his love over the phone. Um, I called him on Monday, the day before the accident, as I was walking to the gym. It's a 10-minute walk, and I just called to chat and... I'm going to miss being able to just pick up the phone and call my dad for fun and hearing him say, hi, sweetie, how are you doing? Hearing his voice. Um, dad grew up in Africa, as you well know, and he loved to dance. Many of you probably don't know that. Many of you probably haven't had the pleasure of seeing him dance. Um, but I'm going to miss watching him be silly in the kitchen dancing with his Zulu warrior moves that uh, <laughs> some of you might be able to picture. I'm not sure how I feel about doing a demonstration. Just Google it. And uh, anyway, there's nothing quite like watching my dad dance. <laughs> it was also a solution to things. Just dance it out, Che. He would tell me, quote unquote, just shake your booty. That's what he would say. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I became a Christian when I was 12 because someone said having a heavenly father is just like having an earthly father, but father, but better. And I thought, what could be better than my own earthly father? You know, if there's a heavenly being who's even better than my own dad, I mean, why wouldn't I say yes to that? And I'm, I'm going to miss watching him love my mom as he would walk by her in the kitchen and just touch her shoulder. 
He didn't do anything fancy. But we all knew that there was nothing he wouldn't do for her. And I'm so grateful that as a daughter, I had that safe canopy to grow up in. Yeah. Um, Psalm 46 was my dad's favorite, and he would often quote verse 10, which says, Be still and know that I am God. And so I have that to take with me. I can hear it in my dad's voice. I have his voice in my head and his love in my heart, and I don't know how I'm going to live without him because he was the best girl or a best dad a girl could have asked for. Um, yeah, and I, I'm glad that you're all here. It's, it's a privilege to have you here loving us in this moment and holding us up. And um, yeah, I'm going to miss you, Dad. And it was my privilege to love him in the hospital under unspeakable circumstances and watching him love us. He asked how we were doing when he was lying there. I remember he once asked his nurse, how are you doing? (laughs) As if he should be concerned about her in that moment. He's just a beautiful man. And uh, I'm grateful for the privilege of being his daughter and having him inside of me and being part of him as I live out my life. So thanks again for being here and loving us. This reminds me of when I, pardon me. This reminds me when I came out of the hallway at the Olympics into a stadium full of 12,000 people. The pressure was unspeakable. But in that moment, when I was just so scared and I didn't know what I was going to say, do, act, handle pressure, it came to me because I knew love for my family and I was able to go out there And just take it in. And this has nothing to do with volleyball. This has everything to do with me coming out there and I just took 15 seconds. And I just did a 360. And I took it in. And this is so beautiful to see everybody here today to celebrate Norman Reader. And I want to thank you all so much for taking the time to be a part of this, this process of our family releasing our dad who's made such a clear impact on so many people Um, so it's just a pleasure to take this in right now I'm going to take my time represent my family Chaley did so great I'm speaking for mom thank you guys truly for being here it's so special reflecting on my childhood Where do you start? And all I can say right off the bat is I knew love for my father. He showed me love. And now I can show love. He showed so many people love unconditionally. I'm actually a bit jealous of all the stories of him loving people. Where did he find the time to do all that? What is this? (laughs) Um, It's incredible how one man can impact so many people in so many different places and countries. He showed me love 
And now I can give that to other people. And he showed me the best that I've ever seen. For my mother, he loved you so much and will continue to love you so much. To Chela, he loved you so much. The extended family, and then anyone who entered his life, if he liked you, deal with it. He loved you. <laughs> this one's really important for me is he didn't put his shit on me. He didn't put his stuff, his baggage. He has a many different lives that he's lived, and I was brought into his life here in the Comox Valley, and I was not on the hook for anything that he experienced in his life. He loved me, and he encouraged me. But he, anything that happened in the past that he regretted, that happened to him, that he held, he didn't put on me. And in a world where a lot of people are quick to complain and quick to speak ill of other people, he put none of that on me and he let me be me and he just guided me unconditionally my sister unconditionally and let us be us and encouraged us to be us which is such an incredible gift he set the standard through actions he was a man of few words because he was either in the shed <laughs> working on projects connecting with people at work action where is dad doing something and there's a lot of people that talk you know throughout this experience so many of his attributes have come to life and he was just a man of action throughout everything and he was a man of action on his deathbed I work I trained him the day before he passed he wanted to do a band workout. We were doing leg presses with me, just going back and forth on the, on the bed. And he was just always itching to go for it. And he had me believe that I could achieve anything. And it's so incredible to hear all of the people that have shared that my dad believed in every single person more than they believed in themselves. And that created so much space for us to succeed, whatever that looked like, to once again be us, to take chances, to fail forward. He believed in me and Chela and mom so much. And that really sums up my childhood. He supported me so much and our family so much and was just absolutely ruthlessly unconditional with love. I saw him love my mom, and I'll remember that forever. He loved you so much, mom. You were his number one. And I'm sure there's a lot of people here supporting my mom and Norm, but mom through teaching. And, you know, dad made sure that mom was successful and gave, gave her everything to make sure that she could impact the world in the way that she could. He never laid a trip on you. He was never jealous of all of the friends that you had or the success that you had. He only supported you, and it was beautiful to watch. 
and he loved you. And you always will, Ma. And Shayla, I got to see him support you, to care for you, to be there for you, to be your supporting network, to be your anchor, to just be so gracious with his hand and his words. That'll stay with me forever. It was a pleasure to watch your relationship as you grew up and into adulthood and to see you care for him in the hospital. Jayla's pretty much a nurse now, side note. Took her two months to learn the practice. Uh, I'm sure not too many people are shocked by that. Incredible. When I was 20 years old, I went to Portugal for the under-21 World Championships. And it was my first big tournament. It was my first time competing overseas. It was my big point, big boy pants tournament. And we're at the hospital. And of course, my family commuted to send me off in Vancouver. And we're there. My dad looks at me in the eyes and he says, if anything happens to me, don't come back. I had no clue what that meant at that time. But we cried because it meant something. But I know what it means now. He released me into the wild. He released me. He let go. He'd done everything that he could. And he just supported me from afar. Words like, what can I say, champ? Just keep going. That's, that was his advice every single time consistently. The sacrifice had already been made. He was the most selfless man, if we didn't know that already, I've ever met. He would do everything to ensure that I and Shayla and mom had what we needed. At one point in time, he would have worked up in Alberta in, in the 60s to provide for our family. He didn't care what he did as long as he provided for us. And on the flip side, Whatever he did, if it wasn't in accordance with, you know, who he was, it wasn't his passion, he never put that on us. All we received is love. And he taught me everything. And I didn't know it at the time, but how he raised me through action, through loving other family members, and through values and integrity and communication. There was no conflict with that. It was only communication. He was so calm so calm in everything and I just value his guidance so much because his leadership was truly servant leadership he led from the front and the back and when I was 21 I received all of that and I didn't even know it and now it's coming full circle and it's just it's so wild I'd always wanted to do a Costa Rica trip with my dad after watching The Endless Summer 2. We always wanted to go surfing together. <clears throat> and this April, him and I went to Costa Rica together for nine days. And it, I don't know why, but it was heavy on my heart that we had to go. Like nothing else mattered. We had to go to Costa Rica now, and he bought in. And he was stoked. 
and he came back from Africa and he was, I think 2014, 2015. And, you know, he was gutted because he saw Africa in a way that he never wanted to see it. It was just devastated. And there was a couple years there. We kind of lost himself. He just wasn't as motivated. wasn't as colorful. He despised winters, which is tough here. And so I brought him to Costa Rica and I had nine days with my dad in April where we surfed two days. We crushed workouts. My dad was a yoked 73 year old. <laughs> we ate together. We swam together. We biked together. We slept in the same room and we literally caught a sunrise at 5 a.m. every single night or so every morning and a sunset every evening for nine days straight. We did not leave each other's side. And I'm so blessed for that experience because I feel like I have full closure on everything. We shared everything that we possibly could. And in talking with Alan and, you know, there were some things that he just didn't want to bring into the world. He didn't want to speak about things from his African days. He didn't want me to hold on to that. And so there were some times where I wanted to ask him questions and he said no. And I'm now okay with that because he didn't want to put that on me. So coming back from that Costa Rica trip and now obviously experiencing this tragedy, it's never too late. Do it now. Do it. We did it. And he died. And I will have that for the rest of my life. He told me on this trip, I'd never heard him say this before. You might be 50% of a partnership, but it's 100% on you. Man, that hit home. He took responsibility for everything. He put 100% into every single person, regardless of whether they came back with 50. Unreal. And age is a mindset. He was cold. He was hurt. He had all these aches and pains. He'd sit up and, oh, sounded like he was dying, but... We got down there and within 30 minutes of being in the ocean, he was 50 years old again. He was cured. And he was so reinvigorated and like he got his mojo back. He, he did. He was 73 and he was vibing. He was ready to rock and roll. He was telling Matt, we're going to do a one day trip to Tofino. Wait, one day? Like, yeah, hoof it there, hoof it back. Same day. We're going surfing. Let's do this. Like he was ready to go. Apparently he was training to put on weight this summer. Like he was ready to rock and roll, but he found his mojo. And uh, it was just so beautiful to be a part of that experience with him. And now amidst this tragedy, there are more lessons to be learned. Truly, this is a tragedy. There's no fault. It was an accident and he fell and that impact caused a two month battle in the hospital that unfortunately took his life and he fought 
there was one word that came up. It was warrior. Man, he was a warrior. We only have this moment. And as a family, we would be there and we would just figure out ways to be present, to not get carried away with the what ifs of the future, positive or negative, to worry about the past, positive or negative. We just focused on being present with him every single moment and gave him everything that we had. He was doing what he loved and it took his life. But keep doing what you love. You're not your circumstance. We came in one day and he'd just gotten his voice back because he had a tracheotomy that had a valve that allowed him to speak and we hadn't heard him speak for a while. And his first words of that day was, I'm dying. And we pulled a shoot. Oh my God. We just totally freaked out that day. Um, Grabbed a meeting with the doctor had a wonderful hour and a half perspective with the head doctor and the nursing team. And he wasn't dying and he's saying, pull the plugs. I'm out of here. This is it. And there were actually no plugs to pull out. So we kind of had to have this intervention and with the head doctor and the staff. And there's about seven of us around the bed and the doctor did a beautiful job of just letting him know what was actually happening. And I'll never forget this. He just went, okay, well, what's next? In that moment, he thought he was dying. Someone told him he wasn't. Perspective shift. We're going. What do I tell me what I have to do now then? Okay. You're not your circumstance. And this has come up for me day in, day out since I first got the call from mom that dad had a fall. If not family first, then what? I don't know where it came from, but it just is on repeat every day, every second. If not family first, then what? And we rallied as a family. I am so proud of what we did. We accomplished something. We didn't lose. although it wasn't the outcome that we wanted, we truly accomplished something. And the Reader family came together in a way that many people had never even experienced before. We were that family just taking it over. But then once they kind of got to know us a little bit, they realized it was coming from a good place and they accepted us. And we rallied every single day for two months. And I have no regrets. And I hope you guys don't as well we achieve something there and we're closer. So my dad in Costa Rica told me, you chose me. Wait, what? Yeah, you chose me. My son, you chose me as to be your father. And I didn't know what to say. And so I just sat with it. And we hung out. And throughout this journey, my response now is, well, I chose you. I chose you, Dad. And so we chose each other. 
I am you and you are me. And although you may not be here, I'm you. And I just cannot wait to continue to be Norman Raider as I move forward in my life and for Chela to be a piece of dad and for mom to have dad through us. We know love because dad loved us. And we all know love because dad gave us a piece of that. I love you, dad. Once again, thank you so much for everyone taking the time on a Saturday this summer to be with our family. We're still in a protected bubble here. I think there's something wrong with me for not being emotional, but I'm, I just feel protected right now, and it'll come. But thank you, everyone, for being a part of this. We now come to a incredibly important part of this celebration where we will have a moment of silence and we will say goodbye to Norman. As I was listening, a memory came into my mind of, of Norman standing in the kitchen it was a Remembrance Day, and it was either Taps or Reviley started playing on the radio, on CBC radio or something like that, and the tears started to flow from Norman's eyes. You know, as a nephew, I was so curious, what was Africa like? I didn't get a whole lot of information, just as Martin said, and maybe there's some men who do know what it was really like. It's, it sounds like there are, but to see that depth and to see the, the tears, there's a whole other side to him that many of us have never seen. And so we also need to say goodbye to that part of Norman as well and to lay that to rest. So we need to say goodbye. So what we will do is we will, we will commence a, a moment of silence and then we will play a bluegrass song that was played for Norman in his final hours. And then we will uh, we'll close in prayer and we'll have a break. So let's, uh, we'll start the moment of silence now and let's say goodbye to Norman, each in your own way.
Father, we, we thank you for your love, which has been shown to us in many, many ways. We thank you for Norman and his life. And yes, he has gone to be with you. But the lessons and the character and the love that he gave and poured out on his family and his friends lives on. So we ask that you would help us to say goodbye, to let go. We ask that you would seal that decision, that you would seal it and, and help today to be a day we can look back when we did pay our respects. We did celebrate Norman Reader's life. We ask your blessing on the Reader family. We ask for your strength and 
our continued support for them. And thank you for the example that they are to us. We give you thanks for everybody here, everybody who contributed. And we ask your blessing on, on the rest of uh, this day. In Jesus' name, amen.